This season of Things Not Seen is sponsored in part by Loyola University's Institute for Pastoral Studies. Find out more at luc.edu slash ips. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. Our guest today is John Fia. He's professor of American history at Messiah College in Pennsylvania. We're discussing his recent book, Believe Me, The Evangelical Road to Donald Trump, which examines how we've arrived at this unprecedented moment in American politics and the role that evangelical Christians have played in getting us there. We're recording this conversation today at the Seminary Co-op Bookstore located in Hyde Park here on Chicago's South Side. We're speaking in front of a live audience. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is John Fia. He's a professor of American history in the history department at Messiah College in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. He's the author of numerous books, including Why Study History, Reflecting on the Importance of the Past, The Bible Cause, A History of the American Bible Society, and Was America Founded as a Christian Nation? A Historical Introduction. He's a daily blogger. You can find his posts at his website, thewayofimprovement.com. Today, we will be discussing his most recent book, Believe Me, The Evangelical Road to Donald Trump, which examines how we have arrived at this unprecedented point in American politics and the role that evangelical Christians have played in getting us there. We're recording this conversation today at the Seminary Co-op Bookstore located in Hyde Park here on Chicago's South Side. We're speaking in front of a live audience. John Fee, welcome to Things Not Seen. Good to be with you. Thanks for having me. So you begin the book with a dedication. You dedicate the book to the 19%. I'd like to start there. What does that mean? And what should we take away from that dedication? Sure, sure. Some of you might know that the, uh, according to the polls or according to exit surveys, 81% of white evangelical voters uh, voted for Donald Trump in the 2016 presidential election. I was not one of them. And I dedicate the book then to those 19 percent, the other group of white evangelicals and maybe to some extent, all evangelicals, even evangelicals of color. But the 19 percent is really a reference to the white evangelicals who did not support Donald Trump in the 2016 presidential election. What we're going to be talking about a lot tonight has to do and is going to revolve around a term called culture wars or the term culture wars. Maybe as another starting point, we could define what we mean when we use that phrase. Sure. I'm a historian by training, so it's hard for me to define things without sort of defining them historically. The culture wars, I would argue, emerge in the 1980s, maybe late 1970s, 1980s. There's a perfect storm that takes place for conservative evangelicals. I would push this all the way back to the 1940s actually, when the Supreme Court in an infamous case or famous case, depending on how you look at it, um, New Jersey Board of Education versus Everson. That is the case in which Justice Hugo Black wrote the majority decision in which he concluded that there's a wall of separation between church and state, and that wall is high and impregnable. Uh, That case was then used by Hugo Black in 1962 and 1963 to remove prayer and Bible reading from public schools. In 1965, You have an Immigration Act, the Hart-Seller Act, which allows for the first time in American history, Middle Eastern, African.
African Asian immigrants are changing the demographics uh, of the country in significant ways. Of course, they bring their religion with them when they come. Uh, you have Roe versus Wade in 1973. You have the famous Bob Jones case, which the Supreme Court decides if you discriminate against African-Americans or any race, for that matter, in admissions to schools in the South, you will not get federal funding. There are many conservative white evangelicals in the South who run these academies who feel that this is an example of big government intruding upon their right to practice their faith their own way. So, again, I call this this perfect storm of, of things that take place that challenge the common notion that the United States was founded as or perhaps even is a Christian nation. And it's really from that point that you begin to have these debates over the identity of the United States. And they play out, at least in the religious sphere, I think they play Play out in what commonly is described as the culture wars. And so if we're looking at this long sweep of history, it's a history of kind of traditional Christians, what we might call orthodox believing Christians, losing ground on issue after issue after issue. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I think I think you I think to nuance it a little bit, I think you have people who would define themselves as orthodox Christians who maybe fall on the other side of the culture wars or trying to mediate the culture wars. But overwhelmingly, by, say, 1990, white evangelicals have learned one way of how to engage politics and engage culture. And it's a project of trying to reclaim a Christian nation, a Christian identity as they define it. Usually it's, it focuses on one or two or maybe three moral issues that are important. But reclaim that and thus reclaim, restore, renew. You know, these are all the terms that you hear the culture. And they're trying to do that through a kind of alliance with the political process or a certain right. political process. Yeah. The sort of playbook, as I call it, you know, the political playbook that most white evangelicals begin to adopt in the 1980s. And I would even argue continue to execute even as late as 2016 is a political playbook. You change the culture, you change the world to use kind of biblical language, right? Your salt and light in the world by pursuing political power. And if you can gain the, the levers of power, if you can elect the right people who will thus appoint the right Supreme Court justices, you elect the right congressmen who will confer and women who will confer, usually men, um, who will confirm these justices, you have a chance to restore and reclaim America. So it's very much tied to this notion of politics, political power to try to win, if you will. Now, in your book, Believe Me, The Evangelical Road to Donald Trump, you quote another historian, James Davidson Hunter, and he looks at that evangelical project that tries to ally itself with political processes. And he says, if I'm quoting you correctly, it's largely failed. Yeah. And, and so what does Hunter mean by that? And what can we take away from Hunter's analysis? I really like Hunter's analysis, and I use him kind of liberally in this book to provide some kind of cultural engagement theory. You know, for, for Hunter, you know, he looks at uh, the goals of the Christian right as it established in the late 70s and 1980s. We still have Roe v. Wade. Right. He would argue now his book comes out in 2010. You know, so it's still Roe v. Wade. It's, you know, it's pre-Trump. It's pre-Gorsuch. It's pre-Kavanaugh. Right. So who knows what's going to happen there? So the culture wars uh, tied to abortion, the gay marriage emphasis was, you know, at least 10 years ago, eight years ago during the Bush administration. Conservative evangelicals are trying to get an amendment to the United States Constitution saying that marriage is between a man and a woman. That is a defeat. Right. With Obergefell versus Hodges in 2015. So almost every cultural issue, big cultural issue that the Christian right, as you if you want to call them that are trying to promote Hunter argues, at least has um, 
has failed. Thus, Hunter suggests as a Christian himself, I don't think he defined himself as an evangelical, although he is a graduate of Gordon College, an evangelical liberal arts college in New England. Evangelicals thus have need to find some other way of engaging culture. And that's a larger point here because there have been thoughtful Christians, even thoughtful evangelicals. I'm thinking not only of Hunter, I'm thinking of uh, a St. Louis University law professor named John Anazu, who has suggested a theory or a thesis known as confident pluralism in which people who have traditional views on things live in, in harmony or in civility with people who they disagree with. I'm thinking of the old evangelical left, people like Jim Wallace and, and Ronald Sider to some extent. There have been, even, even the, you know, I just came back from Grand Rapids last night, even the Dutch Reformed followers of Abraham Kuyper, who have a, a way of thinking about pluralism. Uh, there's been some really thoughtful ways for evangelicals to think about how to engage the culture, but none of them have gotten any traction, maybe in the, in the intellectual world of evangelicalism, you know, among college professors who teach at Christian colleges, but not among the rank and file. I often say when I've been doing these talks that, you know, Jerry Falwell Sr., the sort of author of this playbook, as I'm talking about, he doesn't really get as much credit as he deserves in American history textbooks. I mean, if you look at the second half of a United States history textbook, it's like one or two paragraphs. I mean, this guy taught millions of people, millions of white evangelicals how to engage the culture and the influence that he has had, whether or not it's failed or not has been just amazing. I mean, he may be one of the most important political figures in the post-World War II era. Whether, you know, I'm guessing here at the University of Chicago, maybe that people don't like that. But, you know, certainly um, he's suggested that the moral arc of the universe may not necessarily always tilt towards progress, right? Uh, in that sense, because of his influence. Well, and so you would then, uh, I, in the same way that you would look at the kernel of evangelicalism and you would find something redemptive there that has been lost in this political moment, what I'm hearing you saying is that you can also, you can look to America and find moments when we really have come together and tried to achieve something great, but it hasn't been in these jingoistic, divisive moments. What I heard you saying is instead, it's been in these moments where we do try and come together yeah. and we do try and achieve something greater. First of all, have I heard that correctly? I think that's fair. I mean, great is obviously a relative, a relative term, right? So, you know, I'm a historian. I, you know, I'm, I'm much more comfortable saying, here's what happened. Now let's debate whether this was great or not, right? Um, you know, those free market liberals, the classical liberals might think Reagan's economic policy was great. And, you know, more more modern liberals, big government kind of people, government uh, people who want government to solve problems and help us solve problems might think Reagan era was awful. Right. So so great's a loaded term. But uh, I want to have that debate and allow that debate to, to happen when you when someone invokes the past. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is John Fia. He's professor of American history at Messiah College in Pennsylvania. We're discussing his recent book, Believe Me, The Evangelical Road to Donald Trump, which examines how we've arrived at this unprecedented moment in American politics and the role that evangelical Christians have played in getting us there. We're recording this conversation today at the Seminary Co-op Bookstore located in Hyde Park here on Chicago's South Side. We're speaking in front of a live audience. We'll be back in a moment.
Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with John Fia. He's a professor of American history at Messiah College in Pennsylvania. We're discussing his recent book, Believe Me, The Evangelical Road to Donald Trump, which examines how we've arrived at this unprecedented moment in American politics and the role that evangelical Christians have played in getting us there. So early on in your book, you take this term evangelicalism and you say it's a deceptively simple label for a movement with a surprisingly diverse set of subcultures. I'd like if you would to flesh that out for us. Well, I think evangelicalism, you know, there's a lot of debate about the meaning of that word. And, and, you know, evangelicalism is sort of in its historical context is really a movement that emerges around the time of World War II uh, by a group of former fundamentalists from the 1920s and 30s and their children who are trying to be more engaged, less militant, less separatist. They're trying to engage the world a little bit more. So I think there's that specific definition. So we tend to associate evangelicalism with Christianity Today magazine or Billy Graham or Fuller Theological Seminary, which came out of that, or the National Association of Evangelicals, which is founded, I think, in 41 or 43, somewhere around there. So eventually, even with that specific definition, there's it's, it's become a rather broad tent politically in terms of culture. There are African-American constituencies who would identify as part of as themselves as part of evangelicalism. There are people on the left, the people, people on the right. There are critics of the Christian right within evangelicalism who are somewhat moderate. You know, Christianity Today, for example, uh, you know, has a really interesting history. You know, they were very tepid in the 19th 60s on the civil rights movement. Today, they seem to have been pushing a kind of much more kind of uh, moderate kind of evangelicalism. I think many evangelicals today are def- being defined by Donald Trump and they want to move away, some of them, at least the more thoughtful ones. It's easy to kind of post 2016 think about evangelicalism in in completely political terms. And that's why I'm not sure how much the label is that that term as a movement is helpful anymore to define anything beyond a political movement. I think the word evangelical itself, you know, has a much longer history than this 1940s uh, movement. I mean, it literally means, you know, the sort of good news, the gospel, right? Uh, Jesus died on the cross, rose again, you know, that can that can transcend, you know, fundamentalists, post-fundamentalists and so forth. I like that word. When I call myself an evangelical, I like to think of that word as it's defined by the University of Sterling historian uh, David Babington, who argued that uh, an evangelical is someone who believes in the, in the authority of Scripture, the Bible on one's life, the, the centrality of the cross, this, the necessity of embracing even uh, the gospel 
gospel by faith through some type of a conversion experience and then some degree of activism, whether that be evangelism or social activism. That's why I still consider myself an evangelical Christian. Evangelicalism, though, I'm not quite sure how useful that term is anymore, simply because 81 percent of white evangelicals uh, voted for Trump. And that's what the media and the press tend to think of evangelicals as. And so if you were to situate yourself in a subculture, if I'm hearing you correctly, your subculture would be the one that holds on to that historical core of what the evangelism meant, the good news, the gospel, the proclamation of that, and not this political sort of shell that has grown around it. Have I heard that correctly? I would say that's fair. Yeah. I mean, I I identify as an evangelical Christian because I believe in, you know, those four things in the so-called Bebbington quadrilateral that I just mentioned. So I define the term theologically. If you define the term historically, what have white evangelicals done as I do in the book uh, over the last 200 years, you know, I think it's still fair to say they are evangelicals, but, you know, I would largely somewhat try to at least reject some of the things, especially when it comes to matters of fear and race. And, you know, we can maybe get into that. Well, I'd like to actually, because in your book, Believe Me, The Evangelical Road to Donald Trump, one of the distinctions that you make from the beginning of the book, where you're talking about white evangelicalism to the end of the book, you begin to raise a different kind of evangelicalism, the evangelicalism that animated the civil rights movement in the 1950s and 60s. And you draw a stark contrast between those two, both in terms of how they manifested themselves politically and how they manifested themselves in terms of, I guess, their public face. Yeah. And so I'd like to go there. But in order to go there, one of the things I want to make sure that the audience, both listening on the radio and here in the bookstore is aware of, is that you really you draw out kind of three levels of analysis in your book. Believe me, you look at evangelicalism today in terms of three lenses, fear, power and nostalgia. Yeah. So maybe we should start out by, first of all, talking about what fear, power and nostalgia can teach us about evangelicalism. Sure, sure. Like I said, you can embrace those four things Bebbington talks about it. You can sort of intellectually embrace them. I think it's and still be driven by fear, still be driven by pursuit of power and still be driven by uh, some sense of nostalgia. In terms of fear, you know, I trace this back all the way to the 1800s. Evangelical Christians have long been motivated by fear. I mean, you could think of example after example. I, I wrote a piece in The Atlantic around the time the book came out in which I argued that, you know, in some ways you could write an entire history of evangelicalism or evangelical Christianity uh, with fear at the center. And when you believe that the United States is in some way a city on a hill, uh, has a special destiny, is exceptional, you know, the new Israel promised, you know, God's new chosen people, so on and so forth. When you begin to see that vision of America erode, it creates a certain degree of anxiety and fear. So, you know, I give the example of, say, the early 19th century with the arrival of Catholic immigrants into the country who are sort of disrupting the, the Protestant identity, so to speak, of uh, of America. And there's always a backlash whenever there is a demographic or cultural change. You see this in American history. There's always a backlash. Right. Evangelical Christians are often not only part of the backlash, but leading the backlash as they were in this sort of nativist response or slaves. Right. I mean, why do Southern evangelicals construct a theological and biblical 
defense of slavery in the 19th century. They do so because you have other evangelicals, interestingly enough, abolitionists in the North who are who are threatening that uh, their Southern way of life built upon white supremacy, built upon racism, built upon slavery. And they're afraid of what's going to happen to their society. So fear is present always in evangelicalism. I think, though, I think scripture teaches me evangelicals are people of the book, right? The Bible. Scripture shows me that, you know, fear is not a, a I love the quote by Marilyn Robinson, the, the novelist. Fear is not a Christian habit of mind. Mm. I mean, we're all afraid. My, my theology tells me that, you know, fear is a product of the fall. Right. But at the same time, to dwell in fear or to even build public policy and politics around the notion of fear, right? An evangelical engagement of the world is, is not particularly Christian. Power, we've already talked a little bit about this. I think the pursuit of power goes against much of the teachings of Jesus. Uh, it goes against humility. Uh, it goes against, you know, self-sacrificial love, which I think is at the heart of the evangelical message. And then nostalgia, you know, is very much connected to fear, right? This longing for a golden age uh, that we need to return to, we need to reclaim. Whether that golden age is America as a Christian nation that we need to get back to, which I would argue that it may not have been a Christian nation to begin with. We may, you know, evangelicals may be pining for a golden age that never existed in the first place. I argued that in another book. But also, you know, what does it say about American evangelicals that they would embrace a slogan like make America great again? Right. You know, I'm a historian. So while much of the culture focuses on the word great, right, what is it that makes America great? I get stuck on the word again. Right. You know, again, what you tell me when America was great, Donald, which I don't think he's done yet. I was on C-SPAN, Washington Journal, and the reporter there asked Trump the same question at one point, and he never answered it clearly. So you tell me when America is great. Then as a historian, I can help you understand that period. And then we can make a wise decision about whether or not it was great. And of course, you know, I'm, I'm leading here towards questions of race, questions of gender inequality, questions of, you know, uh, concern for the poor, these kinds of things that, uh, you know, I would say evangelicals, my tribe, uh, needs to be very, very careful about jumping on a bandwagon that says we're going to make America great again. Right. And what you, are we looking at in the past when we say that? You draw this out. You say that Trump's Make America Great Again is, a, is at its core a historical claim. It yeah. assumes that there was a moment in the American past that was indeed great right. that we can return to. Right. But he's never bothered to identify when that past was. But you do point out in, in your book that when he does gesture towards it, he tends to gesture towards yeah. things that make those who are in vulnerable yeah. minorities very nervous. So tell me when America was great, right? And, you know, all since he's not going to nail this down. Was it the 50s? Was it the 80s? Was it the 19th century? Was it the founding? You know, I don't know when America was great. All I can do as a historian is go by the historical examples, right, that he invokes. So, you know, he, he loved it, at least early on when he was with Steve Bannon. He doesn't bring up Andrew Jackson that much anymore because I think it was Bannon who actually loved Andrew Jackson. Not, I don't think Donald Trump knew much about him. You know, Jackson, you know, it, probably one of the most white supremacist uh, presidents that we've ever had. Right. Um, you know, you can think of all kinds of examples, trail of tears, slaveholder, so forth, or, you know, these 
invocations of phrases like law and order, right, which is a sort of always been a dog whistle in the Nixon era for controlling uh, African-American riots in cities. America first, which is a a racist 1930s pro-Nazi fascist kind of uh, phrase associated with Charles Lindbergh and others on the America first committee. And, you know, the list goes on and on. Whenever he invokes history, he invokes some of the most divisive moments in the American past, rather than the moments in which Americans came together in some kind of pursuit of the common good, which, you know, is often, you know, it's, it's tougher to find those examples. Yeah. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is John Fia. He's professor of American history at Messiah College in Pennsylvania. We're discussing his recent book, Believe Me, The Evangelical Road to Donald Trump, which examines how we've arrived at this unprecedented moment in American politics and the role that evangelical Christians have played in getting us there. We're recording this conversation today at the Seminary Co-op Bookstore located in Hyde Park here on Chicago's South Side. We're speaking in front of a live audience. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. Our guest today is John Fia. He's professor of American history at Messiah College in Pennsylvania. We're discussing his recent book, Believe Me, The Evangelical Road to Donald Trump, which examines how we've arrived at this unprecedented moment in American politics and the role that evangelical Christians have played in getting us there. At several points in our conversation and at several points in your book, Believe Me, you say this phrase, I'm a historian. And towards the end of your book, you talk about the fact that that both has some liberative elements in terms of how you're looking at these problems, but it's also got some limitations. Yeah. So I'd like for, first of all, when you use this phrase, I'm a historian, help my audience understand what you're meaning by that term. And then what are some of the limitations that come by owning that phrase? Well, first of all, let me take the second part first. History can only provide context. I I kind of bristle a little bit when I see my fellow historians on the New York Times op-ed page or somewhere else saying Trump is the next George Wallace or Andrew Jackson. Because in in many ways, the past, we like to say in history, is a foreign country, right? Andrew Jackson lived at a different era and a different time, right? George Wallace, even, or, you know, whoever it might be, Richard Nixon, lived at a different time. So we always have to be aware as a historian that the past can provide the context, but the past is not going to provide the kind of moral certainty or the sort of moral way forward that we need in order to say whether or not Donald Trump is right or whether Donald Trump is wrong. Historians do that, but I would argue that historians only do that in a secondary way, right? We're in the business of explaining and providing context for these kinds of things. Having said that, this book is a complete departure from my my five previous books, which were very much kind of as even-handed as possible. I don't think any history can be even-handed, but trying to tell the story of a particular event or a particular moment in time, at least for some of my books. So I'm really trying to 
to reflect historically on what were the what taking a long view right of 2016 what was kind of baked in the cake what has been part of evangelicals response to politics uh, that maybe helps us better understand what what happened when 81 percent of white evangelicals voted for Donald Trump so I want to see that long trajectory right um, one of the things that happened to me on uh, the night of the election was, you know, I, was, I had been following the campaign. Obviously, I honestly thought that we were going to make another kind of history that night. Right. Have our first female president. So after I got over the initial anger of, of all of this, and especially later on when I saw that 81 percent of my fellow evangelicals voted for this guy, then I sort of put my historian's hat on and said, you know, I started kicking myself, right? I should have seen something like this coming. There, there's, there's a lot of continuity between the way in which evangelicals have acted politically in the past and in the present. So that's where my historical sensibilities kind of come in. But when I say that this is also a little bit of a different book is, is uh, the best way I could do this is tell a story. Early in the process, I was uh, at Calvin College in Grand Rapids, Michigan. My daughter happens to be a student there, but they had invited me. It was, I think, during a volleyball game. So I was able to, the number one in the nation right now, by the way, Division Three. Um, I think it was the, the, the weekend of a volleyball game. So I spoke to their, to, I gave a public lecture up there. This is before the book came out. The, one of the students there asked a question. I talk about this in the book. Like, okay, so these are the historical forces that led to Donald Trump. Like, what do we do? Now what? Like, give us, you know, you talk about hope and you know, these kinds of hope over fear and humility over power and good history over nostalgia. Right. What do we do? How do we respond? And, you know, as a historian, the question, I understood the question, but it, it, it was something that I'm not usually in the business of doing, right? you know, of kind of being prescriptive about here's your action steps now to go change the world. Uh, so I had to think through that. And this book, I think. And people have, you know, people who've read my Wise Study History book and then have read this said there's two sort of John Fias at work here, right? One is the kind of traditional historian. The other one is now suddenly some kind of, there's a certain sense of cultural criticism in this book, speaking to my tribe, at least as evangelicals. And that's why um, I, I ultimately decided to go with Erdman's for the book, because I wanted to speak to my tribe with the book. I thought Erdman's would get the book into the hands that people wanted. So there is some, you know, it's a little uncomfortable for me as a historian to kind of say, here's how we need to move forward on some of these questions. But I take a stab at it. And I think when I say I'm a historian constantly in the book, I want to say, you know, I don't want to disregard the fact that whatever cultural criticism I make about evangelicals in America is deeply rooted in, in my understanding of the past and the long view that I'm taking as to how we got to where we are. Well, when you talk about that story in the book, believe me, uh, you talk about facing that moment when the student asked you the question and kind of hedging. Yeah. Yeah. But then you said later in the book that when you got responses to your talk, almost no one touched on the kind of historical analysis, right. but a whole bunch of people had suggestions yeah. for how you should have answered that question. So when I got back home and checked my email, you know, over the course of the next week, you know, you have a lot of, there was a lot of academics in the room and, you know, uh, the good Calvinists at Calvin College in Grand Rapids love to pontificate and, you know, some of them think they have it pretty much figured out. So, you know, they started emailing and saying like, 
I thought you hedged on the last question where, you know, what about this? Or read this book, read Abraham Kuyper, read Calvin, read, you know, they'll, they'll let you, they'll help you figure it all out. Right. Um, uh, but no one, you know, the history department invited me and I, you know, I wanted to kind of give kind of such some context to the 2016 election and no one seemed to care about that. <laughs> <laughs> So we've been talking about the limitations of history, and you said that you've kind of written in a different voice in this book, Believe Me, The Evangelical Road to Donald Trump. What then would you say is needed to supplement the historical analysis to really help for this moment? Well, I had to do a lot of reading outside of my sort of normal fields. I mean, I'm by training an early American historian. I'm trained as a colonial revolutionary era historian. My book was America Founded as a Christian Nation and came out in 2011. And that book was the first book in which I was really challenged to take my training as an early Americanist, you know, what the religion and the revolution, what the founders believed about faith and transfer that into a contemporary debate that was happening over the, you know, is America a Christian nation or not? It required a lot of reading in religion and politics, uh, not only by historians, but by you know people who are doing good work like Hunter and others. Uh, it required some reading in theology. You know, one of the big arguments I try to make there is trying to replace fear with hope. And we had a we had a huge discussion at Erdman's with my editor, uh, David Bratt, who is a is a phenomenal historian in and of himself, a Yale PhD. We had this debate, like, how much can I go out there and assert myself as a kind of public theologian on this question when that's not my training. So, you know, I read a lot of stuff. I read a lot of stuff on hope, you know, from Moltmann all the way through. I read a lot of stuff on power and the pursuit of power, read a lot of stuff on nostalgia. Uh, I read a lot of material as well on the civil rights movement, which is my, in the last chapter, that's my kind of prescription or my historical model. I had gone on a civil rights bus tour, hit every major civil rights rights uh, site uh, summer before I wrote the book. So I had to read a lot about that since I'm not trained as a, as a 20th century historian. In some ways, there's an interdisciplinary flavor to the book. So these lenses of analysis, fear, power, and nostalgia, you mentioned the end of your book where you counter them. And, and through the book, you're sort of rallying readers to replace fear with hope, yeah. power with humility, and nostalgia with a good sense of history. Yeah. And and the, the moment that you look to, as you said, for a, a sort of a pinnacle of this in the American experience recently was the civil rights movement. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, those three things, hope over fear, humility over power, history over nostalgia. I thought that would give me credentials with an evangelical community to three H's, alliteration, right? History. <laughs> we did a, a 12 cities. We started a politics and prose in Washington, D.C., and we did 11 more cities uh, this summer with the book. And, um, you know, I use that line and every, it seemed to work. But, but yeah, I, I, I think the civil rights movement, at least the early civil rights movement, which I know better than the black power movement, uh, of later, but the early civil rights movement seems to exemplify these characteristics. I'm, the more I read King and others, the more I became fascinated with their use of the American past. You know, a lot of white people like to quote uh, the letter from a Birmingham jail or the I have a dream speech, and they don't really know anything else beyond that, right? But I, I grabbed that kind of essential King reader. I can't remember who edited it, and I, I read through King's stuff, and it's amazing 
change is how many times he invokes the founders, Thomas Jefferson, the Declaration of Independence. You know, I mean, it's really good history in that sense. Uh, moving backward, you know, in terms of humility, you know, I mean, the 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 the, the nonviolence of the civil rights movement. You know, these people were out of they had no power to speak of whatsoever. And they spoke truth to power rather than sort of flattering, going to the king, so forth, or the president and flattering. You know, when, when, when MLK meets with Lyndon Johnson, he is speaking truth to power in that meeting. He's not saying, what do I, you know, what do I need to do to, you know, be in your good graces and so forth. And then, you know, the, I think the whole, I was really influenced by David Chappelle's book on the civil rights movement, Stone of Hope, uh, which is a phrase King uses in the I Have a Dream speech, in which moving forward in hope, uh, you know, not only in a kind of Barack Obama kind of moral arc of the universe, but there's a deeply theological dimension, I think, to King's hope, right, of a coming kingdom that must be lived out on this earth, but the now, but not yet, right? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, you know, I think he borrows a lot of this from also the thinking of, of Reinhold Niebuhr and others on that front. So again, this, this, these three things seem to be the antithesis to what white evangelicals did in 2016 when they elected Trump. I think they acted out of fear. I think they continued to pursue power in a way that they always had. And they continued to have a faulty view of history in which they saw Donald Trump as a man who is somehow going to redeem the country or restore the country, return us to something that, as I said earlier, may not have existed in the first place. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is John Fia. He's professor of American history at Messiah College in Pennsylvania. We're discussing his recent book, Believe Me, The Evangelical Road to Donald Trump, which examines how we've arrived at this unprecedented moment in American politics and the role that evangelical Christians have played in getting us there. We're recording this conversation today at the Seminary Co-op Bookstore located in Hyde Park here on Chicago's South Side. We're speaking in front of a live audience. We'll be back in a moment. So for those of you that are longtime listeners to Things Not Seen, you may be aware that I do another show called The Francis Effect with my friend Dan Haran. He's a Franciscan priest. Every couple of weeks, he and I get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. Now, Dan, why should I be talking to you? Who are you? Who am I? I'm a Franciscan friar, a Roman Catholic priest, and a professor of theology here in Chicago. And that's a good question. I have no idea why you should be talking with me. But if people are interested in what a conversation between you, the otherwise uh, respectable host of Things Not Seen, and me, the not-so-respectable Roman Catholic priest and theologian, I think they should tune in. Yeah, they should definitely tune in. So that's The Francis Effect, and you can find it at francisfxpod.com. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with John Fia. He's professor of American history at Messiah College in Pennsylvania. We're discussing his recent book, Believe Me, The Evangelical Road to Donald Trump, which examines how we've arrived at this unprecedented moment in American politics and the role that evangelical Christians have played in getting us there. Well, you say at one point in the book that evangelicals were willing to overlook Trump's moral lapses because he had, to their way of thinking, correct policy proposals. What is it that Trump is promising? And more importantly, is he delivering? And if he's not delivering, can we think about what that might mean for, for the upcoming yeah. election? 
Well, I mean, uh, you just have to watch the news and follow evangelicals' response if anyone's doing that uh, to, to see what they want out of Donald Trump. I mean, these are a lot of the old culture war values, right? Some of those things change over time. You know, stem cell research was huge in the 90s. That doesn't seem to be being debated anymore. Of course, you know, Nick Kavanaugh appointment, you know, and Gorsuch, the overturn Roe v. Wade, right, which many evangelicals believe falsely will end abortion in the United States. Of course, it will only turn it back to the to the individual states that make those decisions. The marriage fight for traditional marriage, uh, an amendment is now over. So there's been a shift uh, from fighting for traditional marriage as the law of the land and making same-sex marriages illegal. Now that's been replaced by what many conservative white evangelicals call religious liberty, which when white evangelicals use the term religious liberty, very rarely, and you can listen to this, very rarely are they talking about religious liberty for people of all religions or no religion at all. They're normally talking about it's a political term to say we want our beliefs on usually marriage to be respected and we do not want to, to lose federal funding. We want to be able to, um, with the Little Sisters of the Poor, for example, uh, get religious exemptions on contraception and these kinds of things. You know, Christian schools want to be able to say we only want uh, faculty who embrace traditional marriage or pr- traditional views on sexuality. So that's what they usually mean by religious liberty. So when Trump says I'm defending religious liberty, that's what I mean, I want to say it's code. It's not really code if you think about it. I mean, he that's a term that they have largely embraced, not in the sort of larger historical sense, I think, in America. I, I don't think it's a First Amendment. It's, it's a complete sort of captures the entirety of the First Amendment. It doesn't capture the entirety of people like William Penn and Roger Williams and others who who kind of champion these values. So what has Trump done to deliver, so to speak? I think the Supreme Court justices are obviously the number one thing. It's huge, you know, uh, with the possibility now of overturning Roe v. Wade. I think the movement of the embassy uh, in Israel to Jerusalem was huge. Many court evangelicals or conservative evangelical leaders who hang around Donald Trump will tell you that this had nothing to do with prophecy or so forth, right? We want to stand behind Israel and Netanyahu wants it in Jerusalem and we want to stand by them as a beacon of democracy in the Middle East. I don't buy it. I mean, that's true what I just said, but it's it's there's also many of these are, are so-called dispensationalists. They they they're premillennialists. They believe that by moving the embassy to Jerusalem, they're foreshadowing, you know, the second coming. It's a it's a step towards the second coming of Jesus Christ. So I think that was huge. The point is Donald Trump is delivering on his promises to conservative evangelicals, those who voted for him. Uh, If you are operating under a political playbook in which you gain the victory, right? You win if Roe v. Wade is overturned or close to being overturned. Religious liberty is being defended as you define it. You're getting the foreign policy that you want. You give some someone who gives lip service, at least in public speeches to evangelical concerns. Well, I would argue Barack Obama was, you know, used the Bible much more uh, thoroughly than, you know, more often than Trump does. I don't think Trump really understands the Bible Two Corinthians and, you know, right on down the line. My favorite verse is eye for an eye. You know, I mean, so. He's giving them what they want. And thus you have people like Jerry Falwell Jr. saying he's the greatest president for Christians or something like that ever. 
You have Robert Jeffress, the pastor of the huge mega church in Dallas, First Baptist Church, saying, you know, he's the most faith friendly president ever. So someone asked me this before the talk today. You know, what, what does it look like in 2018 or 2020? I don't see any significant change in the way evangelicals are going to vote. I was talking to someone who just had recently been talking to Robert George, a conservative professor of jurisprudence at Princeton. And this guy told me that George said this is kind of secondhand, but George said he's running into people, even conservative evangelicals who didn't vote for Trump in 2016, who are now going to want to vote for him in 2020. So he is delivering on these fronts. And that's all he needs to do if the if, you know, he's executing this playbook. Now, what's fascinating about that playbook, win the culture war by appointing the right president who appoint the right Supreme Court justices. Historically, that playbook has always been associated with what most conservative evangelicals think is a man of character. So whatever you think about Ronald Reagan and his Hollywood romances or whatever, whatever you think of George W. Bush with his DUI or his, you know, whatever, for many evangelicals, they saw Reagan Bush, even Mitt Romney, as uh, once they got over the Mormon thing, as sort of men who had character, men of moral integrity to some extent. Right. This is the first time that they have encountered a president who does not have the moral character that evangelicals expect of their president. And it's, it's a test for that political playbook. So I want to ask you one last structural question about your book. Believe me, the evangelical road to Donald Trump. As I was reading through it, I noticed this and it it struck me enough that I thought to remark on it. There's a lot of Bruce Springsteen lyrics in this book. (laughs) What's going on with that? I'm very stereotypical. I grew up in North Jersey, listened to Bruce my whole life. I'm a diehard Bruce fan. My editor, Dave Brad, is actually trying to get me to write a, a, a religious biography of Bruce Springsteen. I don't know if it'll ever happen, but I'm, my next book, I'm going back to where I feel more safe in the 18th century. But I loved I loved his quote. You know, he has this great quote. I used this at the beginning of one of the chapters, right? Uh, Fear's a dangerous thing. You turn your heart black. You can trust. You can take a God-filled soul turn it to devils and dust, right? Um, I just thought that so captured uh, those sort of white evangelical kind of experience. Um, But yeah, go Bruce. I'd like to invite the audience to join me in thanking John Fia. John, thank you for being here today. It was fun. Thanks. We've been speaking today with John Fia. He's professor of American history at the history department at Messiah College in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. He's the author of numerous books, including Why Study History, Reflecting on the Importance of the Past, The Bible Cause, A History of the American Bible Society, and Was America Founded as a Christian Nation, A Historical Introduction. He's a daily blogger. You can find his posts at his website, thewayofimprovement.com. We've been discussing today his most recent book, Believe Me, The Evangelical Road to Donald Trump, which examines how we arrived at this unprecedented moment in American politics and the role that evangelical Christians have played in getting us there. We've been recording our conversation today at the Seminary Co-op Bookstore located in Hyde Park here on Chicago's South Side. I want to thank all of the staff of the Seminary Co-op Bookstore for all the help that they gave in making this event possible. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park, here on the south side of Chicago. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. 
Neither Zygon nor LSTC is responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keija. Our show is made possible in part through the generosity of our supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and to find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us. Thank you.